Bob's Red Mill, believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to Fun Man About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are in Newburgh uh, at Graft Cider with Kyle Share, founder, and you are in charge of all the, the operations here for the most part. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Conception to glass. Yeah. This is your baby. I like to say cider crafter instead of cider maker because at the end of the day, my goal is not to be on the production floor every day. It's to kind of like oversee our fermentation processes, the flavor profiles we're working with, and then the artwork that goes along with it. So, mm-hmm. like you said, from juice to glass, but with a lot out all the, the hard labor. Where are you coming from before this? So, what what uh, led to this effort? Absolutely. So in 2011, uh, my father and I, who was a UC Davis grad, started Millstone Cellars um, back kind of when cider just started to boom. Um, we knew we wanted to do something a little different with his wine background. We started focusing on 100% oak fermentation and aging. Um, you know, I thought we were going to be selling more to young wine drinkers, but as we kind of got our products out in the market we started to see that a lot of the sour beer bars in D.C., especially because they're a little more forward drinking, being based out of Maryland, um, were starting to catch on to it, bring us in for events. And, you know, after I started trying a bunch of the Cantillon and, you know, Dry Fontaine and all the stuff being made over in Belgium, I'm like, you start seeing the similarities. And I got really excited about that style. And so we said, so screw it. We're not making any other style. We're just focusing on wild yeast fermented dry sour ciders, which is also, funnily enough, what they've been making over in Europe for hundreds of years and probably made in America 200 years ago when they didn't have all the controls and the, you know, the cleaners and all that stuff. Um, so it's got a lot of rich history and actually every single uh, area in Europe kind of has its own flavor profile based on either the apples or the fermentation styles. Um, and what we kind of want to do here with, what we wanted to do with Millstone was kind of bring that back. We sourced everything within 150 miles um, of the cidery and just did a really kind of like taste the terroir and what you can do it was it was limiting but it was also super fulfilling because we were able to just delve deeper and deeper and deeper into these limited options and from that you discover so many more options that you would never have thought of if you were had you know access to the globe you know globalism and all that stuff so with graft um we kind of went a little full you know we grew the market. We were in the top 10 uh, uh, accounts, 10% of accounts in every single state we went into. We were in California, New York, uh, Maryland, D.C., Washington State. Um, and it was about five years in. I was expecting someone to start doing 
you know, these wild yeast fermented dry sour ciders in a larger capacity um, and maybe more of instead of a high end, more of a mid tier thing. Um, and in the five years, everyone was still making sweet, <laughs> just very crisp, clean ciders. And right. I was kind of bummed out because I don't really drink ciders. I drink like the European stuff because it's so interesting. Um, but you know, there's just so much more to what you can do with the juice. So anyway, I started working on this concept of graft, but the concept was saying, hey, let's bring this wild yeast fermented, dry, sour, slightly funky style to the masses. Um, that started about, I don't know, probably 2014 was kind of the ideation for it. And then, you know, so I kept working on the concept for about two years, talked to different distributors, kind of like what we could do, price points, all that fun, unsexy stuff. But right now it was about... Graft was about taking this wild yeast, dry, sour, fermented style. Number one, it had to be in cans, because that was the only way you could get large market adoption. Uh-huh. And number two, we had to switch over to, um, you know, a better price point, something that people could afford. You know, so we said eleven ninety nine was the price point for all four packs on the shelf. It's not cheap, but it's what we could do, and we knew we could make our margin. And it could be something that people would get into, and they could try. And then it was like... Well, then how do we bridge this gap to the beer drinker that's out there? Because I don't want to steal from the cider drinkers. I want to go after the beer crowd. Just like, you know, I'm selling to myself because I'm a massive beer drinker. Sure. Love all the weird things going on. So I had to create something that I'd want to buy. Um, So we focused on kind of creating uh, three different styles that we would make. And then the concept was that we would rotate these styles every single month. That way it was always fresh. It'd keep us on our toes, keep us always learning and kind of focusing and figuring out what are we going to do next, and how do we do it in a way that it's not cheesy, over the top? I always tell my my new cider maker, David Hall, who came from, um, he was doing a bunch of kombuchas and vinegars down at um, a James Beard award-winning restaurant in Baltimore, came up here, wanted to focus on uh, flavor profiles and kind of how we process the ingredients, because that's such a big part in bringing the flavors forward, because the base juice is always somewhat it's always somewhat similar. I mean, we have different ways of making it. One's 100% bread fermented. One's fermented with lees, and then we kind of blend because one creates more of a, a phenolic, um, tropical, but not a lot of acid. The bread base, and then the lees is more acidic, more aged. Um, either Each one by itself is a little extreme, but the blending process kind of brings it all together. I'm getting a little off track here. So no, no, it's great. It's perfect. This is a free to ask me some questions. So, well, first off, so at what point did you decide to come up to Hudson Valley? So uh, that's where we are. We're in Newburgh. I think we mentioned that. That's in Hudson Valley. It took Chris and I an hour and 45 minutes to drive up from Brooklyn a today. Less. Yeah, a little less than that, actually. So just to give you an idea geographically where we are, we're about... I guess an hour and 15 minutes north of New York City right now. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great, this is where a lot of our local produce at at our local New York City green markets come from is is the Hudson Valley. But why the Hudson Valley? So the Hudson Valley, uh, there was, you know, I'd love to say that that was the the place I was going from the start, but I definitely ruled out some places. Like we were looking at just cool up-and-coming cities with a great up-and-coming beer scene. So we looked at like Richmond, Virginia. We looked at uh, Philly, um, and we looked at uh, like outer outskirts of New York City because there's a lot of great things going on. Um, we started looking at New York City, and we were you know getting priced out of anything that would right. be reasonable. And um, the distributor I worked with, the Millstone, we were going to work with the Craft, and said, "Hey, why don't you go check out Beacon in the Hudson Valley?" So I came up here. You know, you're surrounded by rivers and mountains. What's not to like? Yeah. You know, um, and New York was chosen because I mean, a it's the second largest apple growing um, state. In the country, it has 
now just, especially the Hudson Valley, just this great sour beer. And I mean, it's a bunch of different stuff, but the sour beer producers up here from Suarez, the Hudson Valley Brewery, to Equilibrium are just killing it. And they're all making actually, I think, very different styles from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, what, what better place to come up here, be surrounded by a lot of like-minded people that we can all kind of piggyback off ideas and just make really interesting, really just groundbreaking sour sour products. Yeah. With your focus on, on sour and the process, uh, how much attention do you put to the apple sourcing in itself? I would say very little. Um, right. You know, it, in the beginning, with Millstone, we try to source single varietals. We would ferment in you know, single varietal and barrels and then blend um, after aging. With this, I knew I'd have to get a product in year-round. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, America is in Europe right now, and Europe has, you know, thousands of acres of these super tannic, sour, pretty much inedible apples that they've been using for their cider industry for years and years, but there hasn't been a cider industry in America for, you know, 100 100 years. So pretty much they ripped out all those old trees during the temperance movement and also during um, the increase in cities when everyone started to move to beer, and they just haven't been around. So some people are trying to bring them back. The issue with doing everything sourcing with that is you got five years typically minimum before you get producing you know trees producing and what small business can sit around for five years with all the capital tied up into land and farms um so i'd love to i'd love to see more of that grown here but right now is like what can we do i remember with millstone i started fermenting some like golden delicious i was like look if we can make golden delicious work then i can make anything work and so what i like to say is it's a yeast driven cider yeah a lot of the characters coming from the bacteria or the yeast the fermentation process in time, we like to focus on the apple, but right now, the apple kind of comes secondary to how the chemistry of the cider works. Yeah, exactly. And um, we're tasting that now. What are we tasting right now? Yeah. So, yeah, you, you know, we got we got some something in the tank right now. This is the new Golden Tides. Um, we keep kind of going uh, to a lot of kind of tropical fruity things because we're just getting a lot of those characteristics in our cider. So this one is Motueka, which is kind of like a limey kind of mojito style hop. Um, we have Big Secret, which is kind of like a baby galaxy. And then we use a, a decent amount of lemon zest and then lactose to kind of brighten up the acidity and just make it, you know, a really nice drinkable summer crusher. It's delicious. <laughs> and that, why, so uh, explain why you would use lactose in, well, in this. So one of the great things about lactose, and we can't use really any other sweetener because we don't do anything to stop. We don't introduce really any sort of controlling chemicals, be it sulfites, which will... Um, kill the yeast or sorbates, which will pretty much make it so the yeast can't reproduce anymore, the way almost all cideries in America work right now. So we can't just add sugar and then, you know, put it through filtration or add sulfite sorbate to stop that process. But what we found with lactose is the brett will still eat it, but it eats it so slow that we can still retain a lot of that. Uh, Just a little bit of, like, it's still like an off-dry, but a little bit of sweetness. And even if it does eat through all of it, that creaminess kind of sticks around. And that's just really beautiful, I think, in creating more body in something that's typically so thin. Yeah. It's it's pretty awesome how it balances everything out. Thank you. So, tell us a little... All right. So, we're standing in the middle of the cider, your cidery. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is... How big is this tank? So, this is a 2,500-gallon tank. Um, Pretty much, we had to buy two of them. That way, because we get everything in by tankers, that way we can quickly offload. The goal is for next year with the expansion is to buy two 6,000 gallons. So we just go straight in, up the, the hoses so they're not sitting around for hours. So right next to, you know, this little Marquetta, it's a little meat market next to us. So, they, you know, we're getting their way. So we're just trying to do everything possible to get them in and get them out cool. as quick as possible. So you're transferring directly from the tanker into these. Correct. And then this has 
this is a mix of bread, right, you said? Yeah, so we pretty much start everything with a bread strain. Um, I went along the East Coast. Um, I didn't want to use um, kind of like anything from like White Labs or something like that because a lot of those bread strains are cultured to work on beer chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started finding um, a bunch of um, wild apple trees, um, different parts in New York, different parts in uh, PA, different parts in Maryland, and found a strain in New Paltz. Um, I was sending it all down to a yeast lab called um, RVA, Least, RVA Yeast in Richmond, Virginia. They were then taking the uh, fermented juice from the wild apple trees that I had pressed and then isolating like two or three bread strains, two or three sack strains. And then, you know, at this this point in time, I was like living out of my apartment. So I was like, just had tons of, it looked like a mad scientist lab. And I was like, go through and just, you know, like, do you want me to do an RNA analysis and like identify these? I'm like, well, it's got to taste good first. And it also has to outcompete against the wild yeast coming in. I mean, we almost do, if you look at it, we almost do a, um, oh Christ, uh, the, the big tanks outside a completely spontaneous fermentation every single time because, you know, these apples are sitting out in an orchard getting filled with the yeast and bacteria. We do nothing to stop or impede those things. We just say, hey, here's our bread strain. Hopefully it's strong enough so that a lot of the characteristics that we're creating so are going to come from that. They're not pasteurizing no. before it comes here on the tanker. It's just coming straight. No, I, I yeah, they, they, I tell them to do absolutely, you know, nothing. like if they did anything to it, I'd be kind of, yeah, yeah. It'd be, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't help the fermentation process. And then how big are these guys? So these are 1,200 gallons. Um, you know, these were bought, these are actually, these three, I have 3,200 gallon tanks and they were the first things we ever had in here that we were fermenting with way back when and um, it was a blessing and a curse they have about 80 gallons that we can't easily get out we put racking arms on them and everything um, but they still don't help we have to actually literally get a forklift behind them and like empty them to fully clean them out um, so they're paying the ass to clean um, and we were already doing lees re-fermentation anyway. My goal was like, you know, we just capture the lees in yeast sprinks, and then we just spray it back in. But with these, they already got that 80 gallons of lees, so we just keep pumping off. And there's that 80 gallons of residual in that 1,200 gallons. I can just pump in fresh juice back on. And what we're working on now, and we're working with um, Mount St. Mary's College uh, through Startup New York um, to do, we're doing a bunch of isolation and kind of just figuring out um, the chemistry and what changes. Um, but now what I'm trying to do is figure out how to do a bread fermentation, then around a week and a half in, when the bricks is eaten to a certain percentage, we're trying to figure out what that percentage is, we introduce um, a bacteria or several strains of bacteria. Um, right now we're buying some lacto strains, some pedio, but we're also going to be utilizing our lees um, to see if it's worth going in there and isolating stuff out of those. Um, kind of do the same thing that you did with the bread. Exactly. So we can do everything all in one tank. We create acidity. Um, you know, when we started, we were getting pretty high acidities um and that's great when it's in a 750 milliliter bottle but when it's in a can you want drinkability so we've been kind of dialing everything back um, i think one beer that really put me on that path was um uh suarez's uh country beers which is a great great branding name and just i tried it and it was like a set you know it was like country beer so they're not calling it a sour and you try it and it's tart but that's it and that's beautiful like there's so many beers out there that are sour just to be sour and it doesn't add anything it just, you know, just bracingly sour, and you can't really get through it. So I said, well, that's amazing. Let's make everything like that. You know, that's kind of a, you know, an epiphany moment. Yeah. Hey, it's Kathy Irway, the host of Eat Your Words. Today I'm here with Camilla Salisbury, author of Bob's Red Mill Everyday Gluten-Free Cookbook, 281 Delicious Whole Grain Recipes. We're going to get to the bottom of this gluten-free craze. 
So why aren't people eating gluten and what does gluten-free really mean? Well, there are two main reasons why um, people are deciding to go gluten-free these days. And the first one is really serious. It's for people who have celiac disease, and it's a pretty serious um, condition. But then there is also a growing number of people with gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity, and they're trying out um, gluten-free diets um, because they find that eating foods without gluten just makes them feel better. Okay, got it. But what actually makes something gluten-free? Well, what makes something gluten-free is essentially that it doesn't have any um, of the protein gluten in it. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that uh, many grains do not contain gluten, when in fact just a very small number of grains do. Does anyone offer truly gluten-free options? Um, well, Bob's Red Mill really understands gluten-free options, um, and that means... They separate their grains um, during the manufacturing process, and so they're testing each batch at every step of the way for purity to ensure that it's gluten-free. So when it says on the package that it's gluten-free, you can be assured that it is gluten-free. All right, so gluten-free listeners out there craving some steel-cut oats can pick up a pack of Bob's Red Mill and rest assured you're getting the real deal. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and all the gluten-free products that they offer at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And then, so you're, you have different series that you kind of come out with. You yeah. m- mentioned them before, but let's go a little bit more in depth into those, if you don't mind. So you have a Gosa. Yeah, we have series. a Gosa style that we do a new one every month. We have a Hop style that we do every month. And then we have a rustic, which doesn't change because it's you know it's supposed to be you know the quintessential farm style cider. You know you don't throw a bunch of different stuff. You can, but that's what the other series are for. So for that, we had to buy a 2,500 gallon fodder um, that we do a Solera program with because the ciders we were making at around and most of our stuff we age for about two months. And at that point, it's really juicy, bone dry. I mean, it almost tastes like it's sweet. But there's absolutely no sweetness to it beautiful but it's not what i imagine a rustic cider being so we started doing a getting this photo so we can have that oak age and the solera program is pretty much at two months we'll fill the photo about a fifth and every month we'll pull out a fifth so the average age in there is five to six months so we have that aged kind of funky cider going in at typically around 33 percent of the blend and that kind of creates um, the interesting slight funk to kind of introduce you know the american palate to what these European wild, especially the Spanish cedras, yeah, um, kind of what those are. And, you know, instead of buying a 750, they can now get in the can, go out and, on the beach and drink some, some, you know, some funky American cider, which is kind of cool. How, how old is, is Graft? Um, right now, I think we're just going. So we started build out here in um, June of last month, last year. Um, we started fermenting last September of uh, 2016, and we started selling in November of 2017. So we've only been selling for about, we're just coming up on nine months now. I'm, I'm curious, because uh, I'm talking about the carbonation process. Do you uh, Tell us about your carbonation process and cans and uh, stability, feel, feeling of stability with, with, with that. Yeah, absolutely. So we started out, everything, because we didn't have the glycol chilling, we didn't have any CO2, everything was K-conditioned or bottle-conditioned, okay. which is how we all did it at Millstone. Um, but as soon as I discovered forced carbonation, 
kind of fell in love with it yeah. and just got rid of everything else. Um, stability overall has been good. Um, we had played with um, a bunch of different things. The main thing is just making sure we get good foam up when we're going to those cans to make sure there's no oxidation. Right. For like the rustic and the goza, it's not as detrimental, but for the hop stuff, you can definitely see it going down. I remember we were playing kind of around with um, just some molecular gastronomy things like pectin thickeners, um, thickeners and things that would cause sus- particle suspension, stuff like that. And it tasted great, kind of created this, this body that cider couldn't normally have. Um, but then when we put it through the candy line, we just couldn't get foam up. And that one definitely was a little more sour because of it. So now we're like, screw that. Screw that. It was fun. It was a fun project. Yeah. That, that's kind of the cool thing about making things over and over again. Like, I'll just keep, I mean, like, I can't stop experimenting. It's like, it's like my, my distributors hate me, but I think, I think the consumers find it valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we've, we've created this well, for ourselves. Consumer, yeah, right. Right. A brewer, but consumer voice ourselves. is changing, though. They want, I mean, we're seeing a certain percentage of consumers that are, that want different things all the time. So absolutely. I think it's, it's, we're at an interesting point right now, both in beer and your cider as well. I so guess. one way so. to keep to keep your focus, you've created these three series. Sorry for the sidetrack. So we're talking yeah, about the yeah, side yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So so oh so we, we chose these three styles. Alright, so we have the rustic, which is a no-brainer. The hop and the goza were came about because I was like, well we need to make series that beer drinkers understand, but it also needs to make sense with the flavor profile of the cider. And the cider, why would you turn into dry sour cider is kind of lemony, it's bright, um, and you know what's like what works with well with that. And the goza style um, you know, you're adding salinity, which creates a little body and brightens all the flavors up. I was like, well, it's called a goza. Is it a goza? Right. Absolutely not. But, you know, it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's quick. I mean, we live in a world of, uh, you know, blurbs mm-hmm. and short little, you know, sentences. So it's like, you know, how do you get something through when you only have so much space on a tasting menu? Right. And then for the hop, I love dry hop sour. So that one just made a lot of sense. And then we... On top of that, and this is just expanded two styles, is we have the Graph Chronicles, which is, I'm still working on the wording of it, but it's like um, a short story series of limited release ciders. All of these feature fruit. Um, Right now we have two kind of styles that we're working with. We have Cloud City, which is what we call a dreamsicle style cider. It focuses on some sort of fruit. Uh, So we've done a pineapple, we've done a, we just did a blueberry, and we're gonna about to do a guava. And that's simply with uh, lactose, vanilla, and some sort of zest. And just creamy, tastes like a dry sour candy. It's yeah. really a cool style. We actually developed it. So we were talking to Jay Wakefield about doing a collaboration. I was like, oh, well, let's remake one of your beers. Let's do Dreamsicle. And then we started working on it in-house to make sure the flavor profiles matched up. And we started just tasting it. I'm like, let's do a whole series on this. Like, this stuff's amazing. Like, you know, so we just said, screw it. Put it in cans too because you know bottles don't move anymore. So Book of Nomad used to be in bottles um, when we started because we also didn't have a candy line, and we just this month pulled that all out of bottles. All of it's going into cans, and what we just started doing with the new launch in the bottles is do a four month mini series where we tell a story. So right now we're doing Secrets of Orion, which focuses on tropical fruit and tropical hops, um, and it kind of follows Nomad, who's kind of the the, the recurring character in every single one of our labels. Mm-hmm. Um, as he goes and tries to save his dog, goes to this planet Orion, they unlock some ancient evil and then yeah. defeat it and get reward and the dog comes back. It's you know a lot of tropes thrown into one, but you only got you only got a little label to kind of yes. break it down over four things. And the kids so. are awesome. Yeah, so. we we just we just figured you know it's like there's so much you can do with beer branding and product branding right now, and just like let's just tell a cool story like 
screw it. They you know we're in our heads half the time. Like we live and breathe this business for better or worse. Yeah. But it's like, you know, if we're going to talk about it all day, let's, let's at least make it fun. Awesome. So talk about what you guys are doing today. So right now we're doing our pop-up. This is our second one. It's a way of, A, bringing people into our space. You know, we get the question all the time, you know, you know, when do you have a tasting room? Unfortunately, just the way our space is set up and the way, you know, we're a team of four people, we just don't want to commit to that. We want to focus on making really awesome ciders. And to do that, we don't want to spread our focus. Um, so we said, all right, let's just do a pop-up once a month. Uh, we'll bring people in. They can try a bunch of rare products. They'll have first access to our limited release cans that we're doing. And we're also doing it in, in partnership with a local brewery that really respect and like. So last month we did it with Equilibrium. Um, this month we're doing it with Threes Brewing out of Brooklyn. And then next month we're planning on doing it with um, Hudson Valley Brewery. Awesome. So slowly just bringing people in. Um, it also marries that concept of bringing the beer drinker over to cider, um, which I think, you know, I think is working, which is... Is, is, is nice to see, you know, when you you, know, you throw a lot of money into something, <laughs> concepts, you know, your big experiment kind of work out. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. your flavors go hand in hand with a lot of uh, with beer, certainly. Thank it's you. A, yeah. it's, it's a great, great thing, a great compliment to our daily experience. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Take us through your process again, really quick. Let's yeah, go blending process. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we bring everything in from the tanker. Um, about seventy percent of it gets inoculated with this bread strain that we've isolated. About thirty percent goes on top of some uh, some lees that we have from previous fermentation. And lees is just all of that fallout. It's typically really laden with bacteria, though it has some yeast and it has some pectin and just you know the solids that fallen out. And we put the cider on top of that. Um, we ferment for typically a month and a half to two months. Um, at that point, we will go and uh, sample everything. Typically, the larger containers get broken down into 330-gallon IBCs, so we'll sit down with about 30 IBCs, taste through. So that's what we're looking at here. You've got how many of these do you have? I think we got like 45 right now. 45. So, so yeah, the variety around. in here. It's not just a couple uh, fermenters. Here. That's, where, that's where the flavors get individually kind of Yeah, like, absolutely. On. Yeah, yeah, they all change a little bit. Um, you know, we don't have a controlled, like a fully controlled process. We, do, I would say, working with wild yeast is more of a guiding process than you know that that strong element of control. So you know, things will go one way or another. Like when I sit down, I'm like, all right, well, let's see what we got, and then we'll kind of push the flavors around with everything else to kind of work with what we have. Um, so that's you know, it's it's a it's a day to day process of just like constantly trying to be creative with what you need to produce. But then how do you achieve it with what you've been given, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, a chef that comes in and he doesn't, he like kind of has like three dishes he needs to make, but the, what's in the pantry always kind of changes a little bit. Yeah. Well, Kyle, thank you so much yeah. for joining us on this and now we can't wait for the rest of today. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for making Thanks. the trip up here. How can people find out more about Graft? Um, best way, you know, obviously I'm going to plug social media. Instagram is yeah. definitely the best one. Just Graft Cider, plain and simple, or just, you know, Keep keep a uh, keep a listen to our website or Facebook. Right on. Cheers. Thank you. Awesome. Bye Thanks bye. so much. All right, we're with David Hall of Graft, and what is your official? Do you have an official title? Uh, since I've uh, moved up here, I primarily came, uh, the original job I came up here to do was to serve as a cider apprentice. But as time went on, and uh, just you know, working with Kyle and just getting along and being able to work together very uh, organically and fluidly, uh, my position's kind of elevated to being like cider presser slash cellar master. So my working title right now is production manager. I help uh, schedule 
schedule and coordinate people to come out to help us can. And uh, as time goes on, I'll be taking on more of the bulk responsibility of setting up the production schedule. And as far as like getting product in, working with local farms. Uh, so that's generally what I my working title is. Uh, on my business cards, it says Cider Apprentice. <laughs> you can't really take that back. At it's like two hundred fifty thousand cards later. All right, now I'm just handing them out like a can. <laughs> You're coming from an interesting culinary background. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yes, I uh, used to work in Baltimore uh, for Spike Jerdy and his restaurant group. I originally started at the, his restaurant, Shoefly Diner. And then uh, as time went on, uh, I decided I wanted to take on more and get more involved with the farm-to-table movement. And uh, it's a scene in Baltimore. And working as a chef, it found it very you know, competitive. It's, it helped, uh, helped me get my creative uh, needs satisfied. And so I worked there. And then I moved over to working at Woodbury Kitchener, the mother restaurant. It was a 2000 2015 James Beard Award restaurant, and as my career went there, I started working from Garmin J. Then I uh, did you know the oven for stint, and then I uh, ended up doing saute. Uh, but I was kind of like getting bored. I was like feeling feeling I could do more, so I started seeing a lot of waste going on in our kitchen, and we were all about, you know, canning, preserving, so we're all about the idea of, like, not having waste, and so I saw, and I'm a big fan of Harold McGee, uh, Harold McGee, yeah. and Zandor Cat. Zandor Cat was my, you know, is my fermentation god, yeah. and like, my go-to guy, and so I just saw that, you know, we could make vinegars, and I looked up the simple fruit recipe for making fruit vinegars, and I started doing that. Uh, it evolved, like I started just making vinegars, I, I developed my own vinegar mother, and then as the program went on, I started like making more and more limitations on myself. Uh, I started using all like like all organic sugars, no like granulated sugars, because we're all at Woodbury. We're all about locally sourced, so I started using sugars like honey. Started using uh, sorghum as uh, the, the sugar to help activate the yeast. Uh, I was just getting going crazy. I had this one vinegar that was just pretty much anything that grew in the summer, like you know berries, melons. Uh, called it summertime sadness. <laughs> didn't make it on the menu like that. They just called it summertime vinegar. I guess they didn't like Lana Del Rey like I did. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I started doing that. And uh, Sarah Kyle's sister and also uh, owner of the company, she was working there in between uh, Millstone and uh, the development graph. We were working. We worked there together for about a year, and we just had a great relationship. We uh, started talking. She started telling me what uh, what her and her brother were trying to do in Graf, and then the moment came where she put in her last month notice. I uh, got to do a dinner for the mother, uh, their mother and grandmother they, for a special occasion, and I brought my vinegars, and I started talking to them, and then it, we just started a dialogue from there. I came up. They had me come up by train to check out the area. I fell in love with the scenery in the Hudson Valley, and this came in here and saw what was going on and I was like you know what this is the change I was looking for and yeah so I know when we we met you at threes originally yeah. at you guys did your a graph pop-up at threes brewing one a month or so ago and we were talking a little bit about flavor development or kind of flavor combinations mm-hmm. I mean one thing unique about graph besides the fact that you guys are doing some cool stuff using um, different yeast and bacteria mm-hmm. is that you have some really interesting flavor combinations and yeah. concepts so just talk a little bit about maybe one what's one of your favorite ciders that you that maybe 
you know, that you've done on either on your own or that you you guys are currently in production, and a little bit about like how you guys did the flavor development. Yeah. Well, uh, so far, since I've come on to graph the concept of like you know what we're looking for to put in a cider, what we don't want to work with, it has developed and changed as like time's gone on. It's a four-person team, so there's only so much we can physically do ourselves. So it started becoming all right. How can we do this but do it better? How can we get a better attraction without using so much uh, product or like citrus? So when uh, the summer months came in, it's just kind of like time and place when I worked at the chef and what makes sense. Uh, season like origins when you know sometimes we would do an Asian dish or sometimes we would do an Italian inspired dish so when I like to, what I like to do when I think of like flavor combination is alright what do we have access to work with and what makes sense and what kind of pairs well together like uh, Kyle was saying we got we're trying this summer and spring we're focusing on a lot of tropical fruits so we're uh, we are doing a guava we're doing a guava one with Jay Wakefield Brewing in uh, Florida it's going to be called called Miami is going to have vanilla, it's going to have orange peel, orange that. And then we're for our uh, new four part series, uh, the first one being a Galactic Underworld, being our pineapple uh, with Galaxy, Dry Hop of Galaxy, and Big Secret along with a uh, little Centennial. That one is so far kind of like my favorite. It's also got honey in there, so the acidity to the bitterness, uh, like to kind of like play together well. And to me, when I worked as a chef, all those things came into play. Like, how can we use like get the same flavor but use it in five different ways like and when I worked in it as culinary how can we get different ranges of the city and that's where we would use vinegars like different vinegars to get those play on a dish and it's kind of the same concept to me when I I like to like go out eat drink and just see how can we do that inside what are we missing our one of our uh, salt and sand bean is that we're at me and Kyle we're just at the bar at our local Miss Fairfax we were sitting down we had it some mezcal and I was like man that's good I because I love mezcal I love I love wines it was a big cocktail scene in Baltimore from where I'm from so like just doing different flavor profiles and figure out how bartenders would uh, use these ingredients and how they would infuse it to decide it's great and it's amazing to like take that from like a like a 12 ounce like cocktail and try making that into a 1,040 gallon uh, cider, <laughs> a batch of cider. So with salt and sand, we just did lemon lime peel. The two go together well. It's kind of like it reminded me of my favorite taco bar in uh, Baltimore, Polcavel. They all authentic Mexican cuisine. They had great mezcal. They had Negronis, and so and then it was like as a chef, I was like we had different ranges of salt. So smoked salt just came up and since we already have a Goza series, it just came, that's how it came together. It was just organic. We already had the, like, we already had the ingredients in front of us and we were just like, how can we put this together? Is this going to be good? So we do a lot of test batches to like figure out if this is a good idea or if it's not a good idea. Sometimes it works. That's why I do a bunch. Sometimes, yeah. like usually out of the 25, like four or five are like real solid or you get like out of all the ones that weren't so great, what did you like about it? Like So take pits from that and then do that over and over again until we find the right you know flavor and like the right way of like introducing that into our like story because graphic 
is more than just the cider itself. It's an enveloping story. It's trying to take you from a different realm and a different perspective. And I feel like that plays much to our mission statement. Like we're not trying to cater to like the same ideology of like semi-sweet cider making in America. We're trying to open up that bridge and like bring people through to this other world and other ways of viewing things. And that's something beautiful. And I think that's something that we do very well here. Awesome. Thank you so much. David Hall, man. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. What do linoleum, bed sheets, and nutritional supplements have in common? They're all made from flax. Flax is an amazingly versatile food and fiber crop. In fact, it's one of the oldest fiber crops in the world, known to have been cultivated in ancient Egypt and China. If it seems like flax is good for everything, that's because it is. Its Latin name is usititissimum, which means most useful. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and today we're getting flaxy. On this episode, we're going to talk to Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network about all things flaxseed. Then, vegan low glycemic load blogger and chef Elizabeth Taylor, yeah, you heard right, will give us a recipe that puts flaxseed meal to good use. So stay tuned. You know, I don't think it's fair that cotton is called the fabric of our lives when flax is clearly the superior crop. Flax? What the flax is that? Okay, Jordan, flax is a plant that has all kinds of uses, including textiles. It's what they use to make linen. Linen? That just makes me think of old hippies and high school English teachers. Okay, that's fair. But cotton makes me think of sweaty gym shirts and tidy whities I'd take a billowy pair of linen pants over that any day. Besides, Europe and North America depended on flax for vegetable-based cloth until the 19th century, and then cotton overtook it. Flax fibers are two times as strong as cotton fibers. Okay, that's a good point. But 
Is the flax that goes into pants and tablecloths the same as the flax that we eat in CD bread? I think so, but it sounds like I should probably call an expert to help sort that out. While flax refers to the plant itself, it also refers to the unspun fibers of the plant. The species is known only as a cultivated plant and appears to have been domesticated from the wild species, Linum biene, called pale flax. I'm talking with Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network and co-owner of The Brooklyn Kitchen, an awesome cooking store in Williamsburg. So Harry, what's the deal with eating flax? Well, Kat, flax seed sprouts are edible, and they have a slightly spicy flavor. In northern India, flax seed, called tisi or alsi, is usually roasted, powdered, and then eaten with boiled rice and a little water and a little salt. It's also used in sabji curries. Oh, I love curry. So are the seeds edible too, or just the sprouts? Oh, the seeds are totally edible. Um, but if you grind them first, it unlocks a lot of its health benefits. Flaxseed meal is much more readily digested than eating the whole seed. And although flaxseed meal contains all sorts of healthy components, primarily there are three of them that are important. Omega-3, essential fatty acids, lignans, and fiber. The omega-3 fatty acids are the good fats that have been shown to have heart-healthy effects. Two tablespoons of flax meal offers 2,430 milligrams of omega-3s. Lignans have both plant estrogen and antioxidant qualities, and flaxseed contains almost 80 times as much lignin as any other plant's. Flaxseed meal is also high in dietary fiber, which contains both soluble and insoluble fiber. It's a powerful, natural cholesterol controller. That is a lot. So based on all of that, I am assuming that flaxseed meal must be huge in the health community. It absolutely is. And we have people coming into the Brooklyn Kitchen talking about flaxseed and flaxseed oil all the time. Often they look like they're coming straight from yoga class. (laughs) But they're not just jumping on the modern bandwagon. Flax is thought to have been cultivated in Babylon as early as 3000 BC, and in the 8th century, King Charlemagne believed so strongly in the health benefits of flaxseed that he passed laws requiring his subjects to consume it. Wow, you know, I'm glad that we have separation of flax and state now. (laughs) Me too, although perhaps we should all be eating more flax. Experts today say that we, in fact, have research that backs Charlemagne's claims. So you don't have to eat it on its own. Flaxseed meal, like the one that Bob's Red Mill makes, is freshly milled and preserves natural oils and nutrients. You can add it to bread, pancakes, muffins, bars, cookies, all sorts of things. I like putting flaxseed on my oatmeal in the morning. So one other question I have for you. um, What about flaxseed oil? Well, I love flaxseed oil. It has a really great nutty flavor, and I love to put it on salads or put it into marinades, though my number one use for flaxseed oil is for seasoning cast iron cookware. It polymerizes, which creates that great nonstick surface that we all love about cast iron. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that settles it. Flax is a wonder ingredient that we all should have in our kitchen. Thanks, Harry. I'm here with my longtime friend, Elizabeth Taylor, who is an animal-loving vegan food blogger and not a diamond-laden actress. Elizabeth runs her blog, VLGL, a collection of vegan, low-glycemic-load culinary creations. Elizabeth, can you tell us what vegan, low-glycemic-load means? Hi, Kat. Of course. 
Firstly, veganism is a lifestyle by which the practitioners avoid use of all animal products, particularly where food is concerned. Veganism is becoming increasingly well-known in this day and age. The glycemic load part is a little less mainstream. The glycemic load is a measure of how a food will affect the blood sugar of the person who eats it. Foods that have a high glycemic load are things like processed carbohydrates and sugary sweets. I personally practice a vegan, low-glycemic load eating philosophy to avoid inflammation while staying true to my long-time plant-based lifestyle. Great. So what is, um, on a day-to-day basis, what does your VLGL diet look like? VLGL is a whole foods, plant-based way of cooking and eating that emphasizes non-starchy vegetables, whole fruits, nuts, legumes, seeds, and certain whole grains. That sounds reasonable and delicious. So what recipe are you going to share with us? Today I brought to you my go-to grain-free granola recipe. I have always loved a crunchy bowl of cereal in the morning, and while I love to watch my morning cartoons with an enormous bowl of Cocoa Puffs as a kid, my adult self is all about granola topped with fruit and plant-based milk. Unfortunately, even so-called healthy store-brought granolas are so loaded with sugar and grains that they tend to have a moderate or high glycemic load. So, I like to make this grain-free granola for the taste sensation without the blood sugar spike. That's, that's great. Actually, can you develop a recipe for grain-free Cocoa Puffs next? Um, but what makes your granola grain-free? So, no lie, I have actually been daydreaming about how to make VLGL Cocoa Puffs happen, but in the meantime, this granola is pretty fantastic. It incorporates shredded coconut and sliced almonds for crunch, cinnamon and nutmeg for that classic cozy flavor, a little agave nectar for sweetness and to form those classic granola clusters, and for some beneficial omega-3 fatty acids, walnuts, hemp hearts, and of course, ground flaxseed. It is delicious topped with berries and plant-based milk, particularly coconut or almond milk. Thanks to Elizabeth Taylor for sharing her tips for using flaxseed meal. You can find her recipe for grain-free granola at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could possibly want to know about flaxseed meal. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out our other episodes of Fresh Pickings and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.